In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Huckberry. Huckberry is my favorite place to shop online. Everything from clothing, they got stuff for your everyday carry, camping gear, things for your house, like furniture and even like art. You name it, they've got it. And they handpick all this stuff to feature in their store. Go check it out at huckberry.com. And if you want to see some of the things I've purchased from Huckberry over the years, go to aom.is slash aomhuck. And if it's your first time purchasing, use code ART15 at checkout and you'll save 15% off your first purchase. Again, aom is slash AOM Huck and then code ART15 to save 15% off your first purchase. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Just point and click. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for your free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash manliness for the free trial and then code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. No matter where you look these days, someone is trying to make you laugh. Advertisers, politicians, even church ministers have all become comedians, but it wasn't always like this. When and why did the world become so funny? And what are the consequences of living in a culture where everything has a touch of humor and irony? My guest explores these questions in his latest book, Planet Funny. His name is Ken Jennings. Yes, Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy guy. Today on the show, Ken shares the moment in his life that got him thinking about how humor has taken over the world. From there, we discuss the history of humor and how it's changed throughout the ages. Ken and I then discuss the recent advent of politicians, advertisers, and amateur Twitter comedians trying to be funny and how the internet has changed humor. We then dig into the consequences of living in a hyper-humorous world including the decline of sincerity, earnestness, and even genuine gut-busting laughter. Ken ends our conversation with a call to be more mindful of how an excessive focus on funniness can impoverish society, our decisions, and ourselves. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash planetfunny. All right, Ken Jennings. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've got a new book out. It's not about trivia, which we would expect you to write about, but you wrote about humor. And it's called Planet Funny. And it's about how humor has taken over our culture. I'm curious, was there a moment in your life when you realized everything, and, I'm, and by everything, I mean everything is funny now in particularly American culture? I think the thing that woke me up was when airline safety videos started to get funny, you know, because when I flew as a kid, I always was terrified of that little laminated pamphlet that told you about the oxygen masks and where's your life jacket and where's your nearest exit. You know, I studied that thing for an hour. And a few years ago, 
those safety demonstrations started to get replaced by little videos with musical numbers. And they were full of kind of wacky non sequitur jokes. Delta had an 80s themed one with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the pilot, just like an airplane. And I remember thinking, wait, why does this have to be funny? Like, there's nothing less funny than the odds of a plane crash, right? Like, what is happening to us that we need jokes here? Yeah, I mean, and besides, I mean, the other example you gave that I thought I didn't think about, but it's true, like insurance, like car insurance, like the, the thing that's supposed to you use when you get in an accident, like that's funny now, thanks to Geico. Yeah, you know, as late as the 1960s, and this is shocking to us today, the conventional wisdom on Madison Avenue was that funny ads didn't work. You had to stay away from all humor because viewers would remember the punchline, but maybe forget the product. And of course, that's all changed now. And the main thing that changed the calculus, I found out, was the possibility of an ad going viral on the internet. You know, tens of millions of people trying to watch your Old Spice ad just because it's got a funny guy on a horse. You don't have to pay a cent for that product placement. People are seeking your product out. And Procter Gamble now says that um, Old Spice isn't even a deodorant anymore. It's an entertainment brand. The deodorant is incidental to providing a fun branding experience, which is an awful thing. Right. Yeah, super. So, so before we get to like explain like how we got to this point, let's talk about like the concept of funny too, because you explore this idea of what, what exactly is funny and how has that changed? And then how is that because of the changing humor, why that's, uh, you know, sort of infected everything in our culture. You know, we've, you mentioned in the book, Peter McGraw, author of the humor code, and he's like, he researches, he's, he's a scholar that researches humor. You talk about him in his book. He has his theory about what you what he thinks makes something funny. But you talk to other researchers and academics about why humans laugh and why things are funny. So what are the theories out there about what makes something funny? Philosophers have been arguing about this for thousands of years. What's the root of humor? Where does the impulse to laugh even come from? Uh, Aristotle and Plato believed that it was laughter came out of superiority. If you feel better or, or superior or smug towards someone else, you'll laugh at them. You know, all laughter is ridicule. You know, to Freud, it was it was more a, a laughter of relief. You know, it was a way to express discomfort or about taboo subjects or, or vent uncomfortable feelings. Today, a lot of cognitive scientists center around the idea of incongruity, two things that don't normally go together. You know, you've seen a monkey, you've seen roller skates, but a monkey on roller skates, uh, that's funny. So to this day, there is no consensus on, you know, where the urge to laugh comes from or why amusement works in our brains. And it makes it hard to track down what is funny. I think it's a moving target for one thing, you know, think about reading a, you know, in quotes, humor book from a hundred years ago or watching a Elizabethan comedy. You know, these things just don't strike us as funny, even just a few years after they were made because jokes move on. But I mean, are there jokes that, or things that are funny that have like stood the test of time? I mean, are there things that were funny, like in ancient Rome that are still funny today? I think so. I mean, think about somebody falling down. You know, that's, that's funny. I don't care who you are. And I'm sure that's universal. There are written records of uh, ancient Greek jokes that we still tell today. The very, the very earliest ha- a joke collection has a joke in it that was still being told about sour politicians in the 1980s. Man goes into the barber shop and the barber says, how would you like me to cut your hair? And the man snaps in silence. You know, that joke's thousands of years old and it still kind of works. But I think the way you tell jokes have to change because again, 
the comic sensibility keeps changing and we demand novelty. Right. Yeah. The, the fart jokes, I think too, have been around for a while. My kids still think my, you know, my seven and four year old think it's hilarious fart jokes, but now that was funny in ancient Greece too. That would be Freud's theory, you know, something that they, they can sense is taboo, you know, even if, I don't know if you like raised a kid by wolves, would the kid think farting was funny? I doubt it. You know, I, yeah, I think they, right. they can sense that we're uncomfortable with it. And they, 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 they realize, oh, I can do something with this. So, you know, for most of human history, you know, recorded history, like there were jokes, like there were jokes you told. And I guess comedians call them joke jokes or jokey jokes, right? Like man walks into the bar, but like we don't do that anymore. I can't remember the last time when I was with a group of friends and they said, hey, let me tell you this joke. Like that is like, the, instead it's like they pull out their phone. They like, let me show you this meme. So, I mean, like <laughs> why, why did that, what happened? Like where you know, we no longer tell joke jokes and this, and how did that change in metamorphosis happen? Uh, I wonder if part of that is kind of the American ethos of cool, you know, that came out of hipster and jazz culture, thirties, forties and fifties. It just seems like such an effort to create a story where a priest, a minister, and a rabbi get on a plane. I mean, what am I, uh, Edgar Allan Poe? Why am I writing a short story for you at dinner? Like, to, to actually get the organic laugh, it needs to seem cool and low impact and something that just I thought of off the tip of my tongue. And that's really the comic mood of today. You know, comedians goofing around with their friends on podcasts and, you know, saying whatever crosses their mind on Twitter. The idea that, you know, we like a more conversational vibe. We like Jimmy Fallon playing charades with people. God help us. Right. Well, yeah, you see about how the internet has changed. One thing I've noticed in the past 10 years, like humor has gotten weird, right? It's like, as you said, like non sequiturs, like that's like, it's pretty much what it happens on the internet. It's like stuff that if you didn't understand the story about how that thing became in existence or how, why it got funny, like you wouldn't get all the derivative jokes that came from it. Here's why that happens. A joke requires novelty. You can't laugh at something the fifth time as much as you laughed at it the first time. So comic tastes have to keep evolving so that the kids are laughing at something their parents don't get. Like when I was a kid, we stayed up late to watch Letterman and Saturday Night Live, and we just knew that our parents would not enjoy this kind of crazy irony. But as that keeps progressing, the jokes have to get weirder and weirder. So you get these Adult Swim um, shows where it's not even clear where or what the jokes are. You know, it's, it's just kind of uncomfortable. There's online humor like, I love this thing called Lasagna Cat, which is just weirdly edited live action reenactments of Garfield comic strips, but with very sad music and even horror movie tropes added in. And it's impossible to explain how this is a joke, but again, that's kind of the appeal of it. We've already laughed at everything else. The well is running dry. Right. And I mean, another point you make with the way things have changed, where things are constantly evolving at a a quicker and quicker pace, is that humor today is much more fragile than it was, say, 20 years ago. You could could tell a joke and kind of flub it, but it would still, you could still land the punchline and people would laugh. But today, it doesn't, like, if you miss, like, one little thing, then it doesn't, it's not funny. It just, it falls dead. And you might, it might even be offensive, right? And then you're, so, suddenly, yes. um, the pitchforks come out on the internet and you're, you're pillared. That's what you see a lot. This made sense in my head, but, yeah, humor is so ephemeral that any little thing will break it. You know, there's a reason why jokes don't translate well into other languages, why computers can't produce them. You know, you, you try to think of an, you try to tell a friend an onion headline that you enjoyed and you'll realize you, you can't crack her up because you're not remembering it word for word. So much can go wrong telling a joke, but we're all getting better at it. Even so, you know, the fact that we're surrounded by this endless avalanche of jokes on social media and streaming video means 
that we're all kind of internalizing what the rhythms and the mechanisms are. And we're starting to get into a culture where everyone can kind of do the voice of comedy, whether they really have a knack for it or not. So, I mean, this idea also you get into is how, how one way that humor has changed is we've become much more ironic. And you get into like what irony means. You talk about Alanis Morissette. I remember when that, I was like, I think in ninth grade when that song came out and our my English teacher was like, that's not irony what she's talking about. But like, <laughs> what is irony and why has irony infused our, our humor today? Well, you know, irony just started out as a literary device, you know, an audience, you know, something, you know, an oddly appropriate fate for a character in a short story or a play where the audience knows that the guy is doomed and the character doesn't yet know he's doomed. And that was just fine. But sometime around, you know, Vietnam, Watergate, kind of the new American cynicism era, ironic comedians like Steve Martin and David Letterman started to expand irony. And so it was a whole voice. And today it's even, you know, I don't take anything seriously, even my own comedy. And today it's essentially a lifestyle. You know, you have people growing facial hair or buying vintage clothing because they're not sure if it works. Even, but even if it's kind of crazy over the top, hey, this works ironically. People voting ironically or telling you know, offensive jokes ironically. It's almost like we want to be um, insulated from any of the possible impact of, of, our, of our convictions. You know? So lifestyle irony is a way to kind of skate through life unscathed without having to commit to really believing or thinking anything seriously, which is pretty awful when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, because it it takes out some of like I don't know the sincerity of life, right? Like when, like when was the last time you actually felt genuinely like excited about something? Because if you look too excited, well, then you're a square. Something's wrong with you, right? Or just or actually telling a, a friend how much you appreciate them or love them, you know, like whoa, 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 no way, you know, we're very comfortable kind of riffing and with light banter. I noticed this recently. My uh, my daughter fell and broke her wrist, and you know, a lifetime of you know, ironic social media had really prepared me for kind of funny quips to try to distract her from her from her owie as the doctor put the cast on it. But when something seriously goes wrong, you know, I had a friend whose kid was in a car accident and I realized I had nothing to say. You know, all these these years of uh, these years of banter and social media quips and riffing with my friends have left me really ill-equipped to to actually get under the skin and like you know, share my real feelings and find out what this guy needs. And I, I do miss that kind of earnestness. Yeah. yeah and you all, I mean, one of, the, one of the more poignant moments in the book, you talk about that sort of how things being infused with humor sort of, I don't know if the, what's the word, or desensitizes you to those other things. You talk about how you watched a clip of like a, an accident and like your initial like reaction is like kind of chuckle, but then you realize that no, what happened was actually really terrible and I should be feeling something else. Yeah, it was one of these dash cam videos. And it was actually, it was awful. It had been near my house and I knew that a bystander had been killed. And, but yet when the link appeared on the newspaper site and started running and I saw the weird slapstick, boing, you know, I, I kind of involuntarily laughed and I realized I did think it was funny, but that didn't excuse it. You know, it, <laughs> things can be funny and still not be helpful or good. And I think that's an important realization in comedy as well. But, um, a joke might work and still do something awful. Yeah. So, I mean, this idea you, you mentioned earlier about we're, we're getting, we're like, we're, we're, we're all practicing at being sort of comedians all the time. And now you can, we have these devices in our, our hands where we can create memes on the fly and we can use emojis in certain ways that elicit humor. But I mean, what's, what's weird about it is that 
as you said, it, this earn, it kind of degrades our ability to be earnest. Um, it's also infused not just our relationships and how we interact with others, but it's infused other institutions where you think, well, that, that shouldn't be funny. For example, religion. Like religion has always been like the, da- like they've been the buzzkill. But now you even argue that religion is trying to get on the humor game. So what's going on there? Any examples of that in particular? Yeah, I mean, in the Middle Ages, you're exactly right. Early Christian scholars read the Bible closely and realized there's no record of Jesus ever laughing. And that, that therefore, that's important. You know, uh, we should be serious in this life so that we can have joy awaiting us hereafter. Um, and that idea has really gone away, I think, because it can't compete. You're not going to get butts in the church pews unless you've got a, a funny pastor giving a funny sermon. And I, I notice it the most on the marquees in front of churches. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know. When yeah. I was a kid, right. When I was a kid, those were Bible verses, you know, always. And now it's always some kind of one-liner or a pun, you know, come to my house after the game, God. Uh, and you realize pastors are trading these, you know, Xerox and emailed lists of funny marquee ideas because they have to keep up. You know, once part of society seems funny, any competitor that's not funny seems stodgy and old-fashioned by comparison. And so humor kind of spreads like a virus or an epidemic. Is that working for, for churches? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like as a, as a parishioner, I enjoy it when I, uh, you know, get a little chuckle from something at church, but I can't imagine anybody ever walking by a church, seeing a sign that says, um, you know, uh, our lifeguard walks on water or something and right. being like, Oh boy, walking on water. That's hilarious. I got to find out more. I'm going in there. Right. I'm, but I mean, yeah, it's, it, yeah. Church has become, I mean, it used to be, you go there to be lectured basically on how to be a better person or why you're a terrible person and why you needed to be better. But now it's like, we're here to entertain you. And that can be, like, as you said, like some, some churches, some pastors or members uh, are better at it than others. There's some depth. I, there's depth, I'm sure there's a lot of eye rolling humor going on in, in churches. Well, that's something you see a lot is people, when people who shouldn't be funny try to infuse humor into what they do, it's cringy. There was a fad for like office humor where corp- big corporations would have, you know, um, funny uh, dress like Elvis days or, um, you know, a special people pr- uh, pr- uh, patrolling the halls with, you know, Groucho glasses on trying to crack you up. And, you know, there's nothing less funny than work or God co-opting humor. We're going to take a quick break for you from our sponsors. All right, if you do not have a beard, it means you shave regularly. If you shave regularly, you know it can get really expensive really fast, especially if you're using the multi-blade cartridge razors. And if you use the multi-blade cartridge razors, at least my experience has been, they don't often give you a very comfortable shave. A lot of tugging, razor burn, razor bump afterwards. I've not had that problem with Harry's. Harry's is a multi-blade cartridge razor that gives you a close, comfortable shave for much less than you'd pay for the brand you get at the drugstore. And not only is it cheaper, gives you a better shave, you can also have them sent directly to your door. You don't have to go to the drugstore and ask the manager for the key to get behind the plexiglass to get those razors. You can go online, have them sent directly to your door on autopilot. Harry's founders know that great shaves come down to great blades made with sharp, durable steel that lasts. That's why they make some of the highest quality blades in the world, priced much lower than the leading brand. And they will give you a full refund if you don't love your shave, as long as you let them know within 30 days. If you'd like to try this out, I think you're going to love it if you do. It's, I've been a big fan of Harry's for a long time. Just go to harrys.com slash manliness. And here's what you're going to get. You're in a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close comfortable shave weighted ergonomic handle five blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade rich lathering shave gel travel blade cover again just go to harrys.com slash manliness to get this out make sure to go to harrys.com slash manliness to read these offer 
do it today and let them know I sent you to help support the show. Also by Squarespace. So if you have some ideas you want to publish, maybe some writing to showcase, some photos you want to showcase, maybe you want to start a little small business, a side hustle, you need a website. But if you don't know how to code, that can be a problem. So your two options are to learn how to code. That can take a lot of time, big headache, or you can pay a programmer. But if you don't have the capital right now, well, that's not an option either. Squarespace is a solution because here's what you can do with Squarespace. You go to squarespace.com. You get to pick through some of their templates that are created by award-winning designers. They're all formatted to work on laptop, desktop, smartphone, tablet, you name it. It's point and click and drag. You don't have to know any coding and you can customize the site however you want it to look. It's going to look fantastic. If you run into trouble, they got 24-7 award-winning customer support. If you want to start a store, an e-commerce store, they've got e-commerce functionality. So it lets you sell anything online. They've also got analytics to help you grow your site in real time. And you can also buy a domain name through Squarespace. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. If you'd like to try a free trial of Squarespace, go to squarespace.com manliness. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com manliness for the free trial. Offer code manliness for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Right. But yeah, you talked about the like sort of the 80s, 90s, like the, there was like corporate humor consultants. I mean, I mean, that's sort of going on today still, but it's like workers themselves are infusing the workplace with humor because they've grown up in a culture where anyone can be funny thanks to memes and things like that. So they, you know, they probably use Slack to like tell jokes or share memes. So they don't have to hire some outside guy to tell really bad, bad jokes. His uh, group was spending an incredible amount of time and expense to make this engine where instead of reporting bugs, with an email or some kind of a Slack note on Slack or whatever, you would send a meme and the, you know, the seriousness of the meme would determine how, how bad the bug was and how, you know, how problematic the, uh, the tech issue was. And, you know, clearly this did not have to work this way, but this is humor has so suffused our culture now that it's, it's not a scarce resource anymore. You don't have to hire a speaker to come in and do a, do a routine with a rubber chicken because now everybody knows how that works. Right. Well, so besides religion, trying to get in on the humor game, another one that we've, that's gone on the humor game where you think this really shouldn't be funny because it's kind of serious what the stakes are is politics. So today we live in this world where, you know, any political candidate, particularly presidential candidate has to make the rounds on the night shows or make an appearance on SNL. But that wasn't always the case. When did politics in America start getting funny? It's really shocking how recent that was. Um, the watershed moment is probably 1988. Bill Clinton gives a just lousy, meandering speech at the Democratic National Convention, and everyone says his political career is over. He's toast. And his handlers managed to get him on Carson uh, that week, which never happened. Carson never had politicians on. But he played his sax with the band and kind of joked with Johnny about how bad his speech had gone. I think Johnny pulled out a big hourglass on his desk when Clinton was about to start talking. And within less than a week, he had totally turned it around. And everyone realized, wow, this is the playbook now. Um, and when, so when Clinton ran for president, he went on Donahue and Larry King. And at the time, this was considered very undignified and everybody was tisk tisking at him. But once it worked, that became the new climate. And today, uh, you know, today we've gotten to a point where the most entertaining candidate might get the most votes, even if he's not the most qualified, even if he's awful. And all the other candidates will try to be doing their 
cringy attempts to keep up with jokes of their own, as we saw in 2016. Right, right. There was a lot of, lot of cringe moments going on. And, you know, speaking of politics, even like on like national, like international level, we're seeing that now. So like, I think just a few days ago, Israel sent a meme out to, I think, Palestine. Like, it was like a Mean Girls meme. And they're basically right. doing diplomacy with internet memes from a movie from the early 2000s. Um, yeah, once powerful people and organizations realized that they could put humor to work for them, ad agencies and political campaigns, um, that was really ballgame because <laughs> humor used to be our, jo- our, our way to fight back against the man, you know? But if the CIA now has an ironic Twitter account, and if Israel is sending memes to the Palestinians they're shooting, like what is left? You know, uh, um, we really have to be suspicious of the jokes we hear now because they have agendas behind them. No, yeah, completely. I thought it was so bizarre. Just like this is this is so bizarre that I'm living in this time where <laughs> two countries are sending or a country sending memes to another country. Um, so besides, I mean, what's interesting too about how the internet has changed humor? You talk about you 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 play up Twitter because you're very active there. Um, I follow you on Twitter, um, and you're testing out stuff and putting stuff out there. But uh, I mean, what is it about Twitter that can that that's conducive to humor and and, and particularly internet humor? Uh, it's mostly the short attention span. I mean, they, they don't have the 140 character limit anymore. But when Twitter first came out, it was it was too limited to actually work for the things they hoped you would use it for—just chilling with friends or. Um, you know, talking about serious issues. I mean, it really only worked for jokes. Humor is the only art form that requires brevity or it fails. And so this huge kind of jokey Twitter community formed with people just kind of essentially having a big sentence contest all day. Who can, who can come up with the best one-liner about the day's events? Uh, once we had Johnny Carson telling four or five topical jokes a night, and now you can read a hundred or more every hour on your phone. And so the, it was very easy for me to get just swept up in that and be like, ooh, I want to hang out with these people. They seem fun. And of course, it was awful and no one should do that. I want to I warn all your listeners, please stay away from Twitter. It will break your brain. But it's seductive. Yeah, you highlighted several, not only yourself, but several other you know, internet comedians or just comedians in general. They're like, yeah, Twitter... Like it destroyed humor for me. Like it's just like it turned like turned making jokes like into a job and not not fun anymore. For some of those people, it literally became a job. You know, they got hired away to to work on a late night stuff because they were writing such you know great high quality topical jokes on Twitter. But I think that's something comedians say a lot in general, which is that once they do it for a living, once they can see all the strings and know where all the bodies are buried, comedy has no joy in it for them anymore. And I feel like we're starting to see that culture wide now that we are all getting as savvy as savvy as comedy writers about jokes. We're starting to enjoy it less and less. We just know the mechanics too well now. We're hard to surprise. Yeah, I can't remember the last time like I had like a, a giant belly laugh where I cried. Right? I <laughs> laughed so hard. It's more like okay, I see something that's funny, and I, I my brain recognizes like, oh that's funny. And that's it. I, I, there's no LOLing going on at all. There's a thing called the hedonic treadmill where the brain gets used to more and more pleasurable stimuli and it needs those just to maintain a baseline. So if you don't have 100 jokes a minute on Twitter, you're kind of bummed. But as you get them, you take no joy in them. You know, we, we, people used to literally slap their knee and, and hold their sides, you know, and now, now it's just more like, hmm. Yes, that's funny. That's, that's about the best we can do. Right. I'm amused. That, that, I know that's supposed to be amusing. 
And I, I would be laughing if I was a, not living in 2018. If I was not a hollowed out shell of a man, I would be delighted now. Right. Well, you talk about Twitter a lot. What about Instagram and YouTube? What, how are those doing and contributing to humor or maybe taking away from humor? Uh, they're both, you know, paths to success. Bo Burnham is now selling out Madison Square Garden as a comedian when he used to just be sitting in his room at 16 years old making YouTube videos with an acoustic guitar. So it's a way to get an audience, which is great if you're in the business of being funny. But again, it's just kind of an addictive, <laughs> oppressive dopamine cycle for everyone else who, uh, you know, just we, we can't look away from these feeds. But, you know, one thing they do is they kind of give us training wheels. You know, they give us a set of templates for how to be funny, whatever the meme of the day is or the joke format of the day on Twitter. And it's pretty good comedy for dummies. You know, it's, it's a good remedial class in how to at least simulate comedy, which is one reason why we can all do it now. Right. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, it's sort of like the, you know, those old jokes from 40 years ago, you know, the priest, the rabbi, whatever walked like that. It's, we have that now, but it's in a meme form. Yeah. And, I, and for a while it was catchphrases. You know, if you could, if you could say, yeah, baby, like Austin Powers, you could be the office cut up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and now we have kind of Twitter joke formats to do that with. So what is the downside of having so much culture infused with humor? I and mean, we kind of highlighted a little bit of it, you know, on a personal level, you, you're less empathetic and you, you laugh at things you shouldn't laugh. You don't know how to console people or be genuine or sincere with them. But what, on a societal level, like what is happening to us now that everything, including international diplomacy, is supposed to be funny? Well, yeah, there's the personal cost for all of us that we enjoy jokes left and less and maybe, you know, in my case, maybe even feel like it's not making me a better person. But I think there are, could be real world effects too with the result of people making worse and worse decisions because we've kind of been narcotized by our, our love of jokes. People buying an inferior product just because the ad was funnier. That could have real impact. You know, North Korea could have launched missiles because they didn't like the interview with Seth Rogen and James Franco. So at some point, there may actually be a body count for this phenomenon, which I, I kind of shudder to think about. Well, you gave an example that I thought was really poignant was uh, there's some Greek myth about a, a city that all they did was laugh and they ended up destroying themselves because of it. Yeah, there's this ancient Greek story from Theophrastus who talks about a city called Tyrens where everybody was addicted to laughter. They just couldn't stop and it was ruining their city. Like they couldn't trade, they couldn't do anything. So they they go to the oracle and they, the gods say, you know, you have to you have to sacrifice this bull and if you can do the whole ceremony without laughing, your town will be cured. But a little boy sneaks into the ceremony and sees the bull getting sacrificed and makes a, makes a pun and just cracks up the whole crowd. And the lesson, said Theophrastus, is that, you know, once you, your society has an inveterate custom, there is no remedy for it. You know, you're, you're locked in. And sure enough, that city was invaded by, the, by Argos, you know, just a, a few centuries later and is, has been ruins for thousands of years. And that's kind of a gloomy takeaway. But I think it's, it's not possible that this is a new kind of dystopia we could be entering, not one where instead of a government oppressing us, we've decided to kind of oppress ourselves just by um, ignoring serious things in favor of comedy and amusement and, you know, not grappling with the real challenges we have because there's just too many hilarious distractions on our phone. Right. Or we, we see the problems and instead of doing something about them, we just laugh about it. And we say, hey, you know, it's a... It's a coping mechanism for dark times. Sure, I got a joke about Trump. I got a jump joke about rising sea levels, you know. But it's gotten to the point where a joke is kind of our default first response to everything. Like I've noticed this thing on Twitter where even when like a celebrity dies, 
immediately a hundred people will jump in and start trying to make jokes about the death. Like the, uh, the guy who founded Ikea died a, a couple months ago and immediately dozens of people on Twitter were like, I hope his casket came with an Allen wrench or, or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's not unfunny, but is that really the best impulse when somebody dies? It seems very callous, but it's, it's like the only thing in our playbook now. It's like the only pitch we have is to tell a joke. Right. So the, when you talk about the dystopia, the thing that came to mind that it's our future where everything becomes a joke is idiocracy. I don't know. For some reason, I think that's where, that's where things are heading <laughs> by, by making everything funny and entertaining. Yeah. My, my wife says she can't even watch that movie anymore because like since she first saw it and enjoyed it, it's kind of started coming true. <laughs> and she's very worried that we're going to start watering our crops with Gatorade and I don't know what's next. Right. I mean, here's the, it could happen because like you, we might start doing it ironically and then we end up doing it and we just destroy all the crops because we were trying to be funny. Sure. Like all the people making jokes about the Ikea guy on Twitter, if you asked them, they'd be like, oh, no, no, no. You know, condolences to his family. But um, but I just, you know, thought I had this ironic persona where I joke about everything. Well, I mean, if that's what everybody sees, that's effectively what we get. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, what's the solution, right? I mean, it's it's so embedded and infused in our culture. Is it just like, you stop using the internet, you stop watching the Delta, you know, fly movies. Like how do you, what's, what do we do here? I don't want everybody to die in a plane crash because they stopped watching the security or the safety video. That would be awful, <laughs> but you're right. Like that's, and that's kind of the, the most difficult thing I had with the book is what am I, I've noticed this thing and I think it's a thing and I think it needs to be talked about, but like, do I really have a recommendation? I don't want to say I'm against comedy. I love comedy. The book is like a love letter to, to the comedy I like. But I, I kind of think of it like one of these charities that, you know, it's not going to cure cancer, but it's, it's raising awareness. You know, oh, yeah, please donate to our campaign. We're raising awareness about prostate cancer or whatever. I feel like this book cannot solve the problem of people laughing when they shouldn't. But I would like people to be aware. I'd like to start a conversation so that the next time somebody thinks, hey, that ad is funny. I'm going to buy that. Maybe they'll, a voice in their head will be like, wait, wait a second. I shouldn't buy the product just because the ad was funny. Or maybe some other insurance company has lower rates. Or I'm going to vote for that guy. He, you know, he was hilarious with Ellen or Jon Stewart or whatever. You know, maybe the person will think, mm, maybe just being on good, good, good on Colbert is not the same as, as being a good civil servant. Maybe having a good zinger in the debate is not the same as mastering policy. So that we kind of think, well, maybe there are parts of our lives we can keep sincere. You know, maybe I should make time every day to get offline or go for a walk or give a friend a sincere compliment. There are little things we can do, I think, to push back against this rise of irony and snark everywhere to make sure it's still it's still acceptable to be to be earnest and nice. I like that. So if you have that feeling, if you want to like if your if your daughter gets hurt, instead of like going to that first impulse of saying <laughs> something funny actually actually give her a sincere you know counseling there when you see a friend you know don't instantly fall into the hey buddy the kind of banter you know why not be the kind of guy who's like hey hey how are you doing how are your parents i haven't heard from them lately you know why not be that guy there's there's plenty of the other guy there's there's no shortage of quippy hot takes in our culture right think like what would your grandpa do like how would my grandpa behave in this situation and then do that maybe that's what I, that's, that's true. That's my grandpa. My grandpa was like the most genuine, sincere guy could just be friends with anybody. And I'm like, I wish I could do that, but I, I, I don't know how to do it. I had one earnest cowboy grandpa and one irony grandpa who would always be pranking clerks. So I guess I should be, I should be like <laughs> my dad's dad and not like my mom's dad, who was always, who was always asking cashiers. Oh, I thought today was free day. 
just to just to watch them be confused. Right. <laughs> be earnest cowboy grandpa. All right. Well, That's right. Well, Ken, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter. My website is uh, Ken Jennings.com. You got to remember the hyphen or you wind up at the website of the guy in Florida who would not sell me his URL. <laughs> and the book is on sale. Uh, bookstores everywhere, online retailers like Amazon should be hard to miss. Fantastic. Well, Ken Jennings, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. My guest today was Ken Jennings. He is the author of the book, Planet Funny. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at ken-jennings.com. Also, you can follow him on Twitter where he's trying to be funny that we talked about at Ken Jennings. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash planet funny where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, you've gotten something out of it. Appreciate you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think gets something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.